0: Please uh, bow with me in prayer once again. Father, we come before You as Your people in Christ. And we ask that, that by Your Spirit, You would draw us to You and draw us also to one another as we see the Spirit of Christ in one another. Lord, we want to bring some concerns before You this morning. Lord, we pray for our dear sister in Christ, Chloe Simmons. And we pray that You would give her strength And we pray you'd heal her body so she could be back with us. We also thank you for the hope that she has of heaven and how she has her mind fixed on that as uh, her body battles cancer. Lord, we pray for her family. that You would give them strength and give them encouragement uh, in the gospel that they might know more of you through this, that they would come close to you through this, and that they would give you glory and praise for how you have been with them through a hard time. Lord, we think of many of our members who are walking through great difficulties as well. Father, encourage them. Give them comfort by your spirit. We pray that your church family would be around them to to lift them up and to encourage them. And Lord, help us do that wisely because we know that we can say many stupid things and that we can be more harmful than helpful if if we're not giving spiritual answers according to your word. So Lord, give us wisdom. Make us well-meaning, but also give us wisdom as we seek to help and care for one another. Lord, we pray that as we're doing that to one another, the life together that we have in Christ would be something so distinct from the world that the world would say, I want that. They would see a difference in the church as the church is under the authority of Christ. Lord, make us be your church under the authority of Christ. Lord, we also thank you that we're not the only church that believes your gospel and is preaching your gospel even this morning. We thank you for Solid Rock Church uh, in College Park, for pastors John and Kurt who are there. Lord, we pray that you would bless them, bless their evangelism effort, to draw people to faith through their gospel proclamation, and they would grow strong and healthy and bring much honor and glory to you. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, to a book that uh, is very interesting, can be very troubling, and yet is we know ultimately all about Christ. Give us wisdom for that. Help us to understand the difficult things. Help us to see Christ here. Help us to be convicted and encouraged. Cause us to love you. Give us ears that are attentive, eyes that see things in your word. Help us to to listen to this spiritually that we may uh, bring, and you would bring to mind areas of our lives that need to change and grow through this. And Lord, we pray also that you would use your word to call people who don't know you to you. Lord, convict people of unbelief, of sin. Draw them to you, we pray in Christ's name. Well, please open your Bibles to the book of Judges. In your Bibles, it's on page 200 if it's in the pew in front of you or if you purchased it off of the black shelf. And we're beginning our study of Judges. It's always kind of exciting when we start a book together, I think. As you're turning there, I want to tell you a story about a man named James. No, he's not a real person, but his situation is all too real. I'm going to move this as long as that works. James was raised in one of those strict religious homes, and for a time, he tried to conform. When he found out his mom and dad were living a double life, he walked away from the faith, he thought, for good. (laughs) Drugs and alcohol became the mainstays of his existence, and sexual pleasure was what he lived for. He kept going deeper and deeper into immorality, and he would strategize as to how to commit the most immorality. James loved his sin. But eventually, James got tired of himself. He hated his life. He was desperate. Like the prodigal son eating pig food, he had come to his end. And in desperation, he reached out to Jesus. He had known the gospel from an early age, but now it seemed different. Now it seemed like Jesus was his only hope. Hope. So he prayed, Jesus, I hate myself. Jesus, save me from my sin. Rescue me. I need your death. I need you to make me new. And Jesus did. Suddenly, Jesus was a greater delight for this man than sin. And he began to change rapidly. He stopped getting drunk and doing drugs. He broke off multiple relationships. He broke off all the relationships he had with, with multiple women at the same time. He stopped pursuing his life of sin. However, a couple years into this process, his growth began to slow down. He had given up a whole lot of his former life. but There were just some things that he didn't want to give up. Some things that he wanted to hold on to. He put away the sexual relationships he had with multiple women... But he didn't want to let go of the fantasies he had about them. He wanted that to stay in his mind, that he could you know, conjure up for a rainy day, just in case he wanted a little bit of escape. He got rid of all his hardcore pornography, but he watched movies that would press the line of what was acceptable. And when he saw something that reminded him of his former life, he didn't hate it, but he had a growing love for it. And it didn't bother him. Now, don't get James wrong. No part of him wanted to go back to his former life. He really loved Jesus. He loved the church community. He loved the fact that his mind wasn't filled with trash, that he could have real relationships with people. Without the work of the Spirit, he could never imagine how he could have gotten there. But he also liked his sin, and he didn't want to give that up completely. He wanted Jesus and his old life, a little bit of his old life, as long as he thought he could manage it well. He wanted to be able to choose Jesus most of the time, but he wanted enough of his old life around that he could keep his options open. Friends, I, I wonder if there's any part of James's story there that you could identify with. Do you sincerely want Jesus and want to worship him and want to be part of the Christian community, but then also want the right to check out of life when it gets overwhelming? You want the right to be judgmental. Do you want to be able to do things and think things that you know, if everybody else knew, would be utterly shameful? But you don't want to let go of that. Now, Perhaps there are sins that you don't hate, but actually go to for comfort. And you nourish them, and you cherish them, and you, you feed them in your mind. Not to the point where they get too big. You kind of keep them under control. Perhaps before you were a Christian, you were driven by pride, and pride marked everything you did. And it was obvious to everybody, and it was, it was unhelpful, it was bad. Now you've given that up, but not completely. You still want to hold on to that pride a little bit, and you can manage it so it doesn't really get out of control. It's not the main thing people say, see, but yet you still nourish, and you nurse a wound, and you still boast to yourself of how well you did. Or another situation. When I was a missionary in Central Asia, I remember being perplexed often by people because on the one hand, they had given up so much to follow Jesus. They, they gave up the relationship with their parents, with their families, with their job. They risked their lives. And then they would hold on to what struck me as the silliest of sins. Seriously? You're holding on to that? But that's what our hearts are like. The old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And that's why the next line in that hymn says, Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. How do we do that? How do we give our hearts completely to Jesus? Well, we actually find a lot of help for that in the book of Judges. You see, Judges, overview of Judges, is that it is a case study of what happens when we try to obey God on the one hand, and yet manage our sin on the other. And... The book of Judges shows us that it does not work out very well. The book of Judges, if you turn there in your Bibles, uh, it opens with the words, after the death of Joshua. That gives us continuity with what we saw in the book of Joshua. Keith preached on Joshua two weeks ago. It's a great, helpful start to understand the book of Judges. The book of Joshua opens with the words, after the death of Moses. So the book of Joshua is about what happened after Moses died. After Moses came Joshua. And then the book of Joshua is about Joshua. And then the book of Judges... Is about what happened after Joshua died. And the purpose of this book, from a historical perspective, is to explain how the nation went from really being kind of on the top of the world at the time of Joshua to barely in existence at the time of 1 Samuel, which is the next really historical section after Joshua. See, if you bought a Bible and they, for some reason, forgot to put Judges in there, and you read through the Bible you'd be like scratching your heads. How does it go from really good on the one hand, or did I say Joshua? If they forgot to put the book of Judges in there, you go from really good on the one hand in Joshua, and then like the nation's barely in existence. And you think, what happened? What went wrong? How did it go from all the way up here to all the way down there? And Judges answers that question. And in a word, it's they compromised. They were not committed to total obedience. They bought into the idea that they could have God on the one hand and have their sin on the other hand so long as they are able to manage it well. They thought they could cultivate a relationship with God and a relationship with their sin at the same time. Now, don't get them wrong. They knew they desperately needed God. How else would they have gotten through the Red Sea? How else would Pharaoh's army have been defeated? How else would they have passed through the Jordan River? How else would the walls of Jericho be reduced to rubble? And and throughout the book of Judges, we see from time to time, they realize that the foe before them is so great that they're never going to be able to defeat them on their own. And they call out to God, God, we need you. The people don't want to abandon God completely. They just want to have God and their sin at the same time. They want to have God, and then when they don't need him, want to keep their options open. I think that's what we saw in the story of James. That's what we see in ourselves. And the book of Judges tells us that if we adopt that mentality, it leads only to a very dark place. You see, the book of Judges, as we'll see as we go through this book, records some of the darkest, most depraved, sickening points in Israel's history, and really any history of any people in the world. Let me say up front, this is not going to be the easiest book to listen to, a sermons on. Uh, If it were a movie, the book of Judges would be rated a hard R for thematic elements, including pervasive violence, sexual violence, including kidnapping, gang rape, and mutilation. It's really sick. I'm going to try to be sensitive as we go through it. We have kids here. We don't want to glory in that. But it's there, and it's real, and we're going to confront it. And guess what? Most of these horrific acts in the book of Judges are committed by the very people who are supposed to be the children of God. Where does this darkness come from? It comes from their compromise. It comes from them thinking that they could worship God on the one hand and manage their sin on the other and it would be okay. It comes from them thinking that their total obedience wasn't necessary. One commentator put it this way, what seemed so reasonable proved Lethal. He's Right. What seemed so reasonable proved lethal. That little compromise in the beginning turned into near total destruction at the end. And friends, that's a lesson we all need to hear. You see, the book of Judges is a case study that should burn into our minds the danger of that spiritual compromise. The danger of ever thinking that it's okay if God doesn't have our exclusive loyalty. Well, friends, that was a, a longer introduction, but I think we're going to better appreciate the part of the book we're going to look at today if we understand how the opening section fits into the book overall. We're going to look at the first part of the book where we begin to see that compromise. But I need to tell you on the front end where that compromise leads to so we understand what God is doing by giving us the first part of the book. So let's turn Judges chapter 1, verse 1. And you see that they ask the question, Israel asks the question, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight them? And by the way, remember, they've, they're in the land. They've, kinda, they've gotten a decisive victory over the enemies in the land, but yet the enemies are still lingering there, and they've got to root them out. That's what Judges is about. Joshua is about the conquest, and then Judges is about them settling in it, or not settling in it, and not rooting out the people that they're supposed to do. So, they're, they're, okay, they're in the land, they're ready for that military victory. Who shall go up for us and fight against the Canaanites? Now, pay attention to that word, goes up. It occurs several times in here. So, I just want to alert you to that. When you hear go up, that's a key that I think this whole narrative is structured on. Uh, and the Lord says, verse 2, Judah shall go up. One of the tribes, Judah, shall go up because he says, Behold, I have given the land into his hands. And Judah takes Simeon along, which is just fine. They were always told to work together. And they do quite well. Notice in the passage, they take care of 10,000 of the enemies. And they pursue a pagan king, Adonai Bezak, and they cut off his big toes and his thumbs. Now that sounds horrific. That sounds horrible. But at least he understood it was just. Notice what he says. Look at verse 7. Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so the Lord has repaid me. Now, one of the struggles that sometimes people have when they go through the book of Judges is that God orders and approves of the mass killing of many people. And we can think to ourselves, and admittedly that is a hard thing to wrestle with, and we'll wrestle with that as we go through it. But some people ask the question, how can God approve of the killing of so many innocent people? But who ever said anything about them being innocent? This guy is not innocent. This guy is a ruthless pagan dictator. He's he's an idolater. He's robbing God of his glory by not worshiping God. And he at least realizes that he's getting what he deserves. You see, God wants to drive the people out of the land for two reasons. One is because it's time for their judgment. God has allowed them to go in their paganism and in their idolatry only for so long, and he's saying, now is the time to be judged. Anna, can you not do that with the paper? It's making some noise. Thanks. Um, it's, It's time for them to be judged by God. So God is using his people as an instrument of his righteous judgment to judge the people in the land. That's one reason why God needs to wants them to root them out. The other reason is that God wants there to be space for his people to worship him alone. And if there's all the the pagan idolaters in the land worshiping all these other gods, well, that's going to be a temptation, a snare for the people. So God asks them to to root out, commands them really, to root out the people in the land because it's judgment on the people and to create a space for the people of Israel. That's why they're doing that. And so far... So good, right? The people do it. They get 10,000 of the enemies. They kill the pagan king. And it's all going well. Well, that's kind of the only point when it's all going well. (laughs) After that, it it goes downhill. Look at verse 19. The Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now, where did things go wrong there? Well, this passage... I liken to one of those mind teasers pictures from maybe the Highlights magazine, if you remember that as a kid. We have this picture of like a living room and everything looks good except a few things are out of place and you got to find as many things as you can that are out of place. Well, that's what this passage is like. There's something that's glaringly out of place here. Can you see what it is? It's that the Lord was with Judah, but Judah did not drive out the inhabitants of the plains because they had chariots of iron. Every other time, like in the book of Joshua, when you read, the Lord was with, it was great victory. The Lord was with them, they were victorious. The Lord was with them, they were victorious. The Lord was with them, but they couldn't do this. Oh, that doesn't fit. The Lord was with them, they should be able to do this. And in fact, Joshua seventeen eighteen explicitly says, Though the Canaanites have chariots fitted with iron, and though they are strong, you can drive them out specifically tells them that, hey, they're going to have chariots of iron, and they're going to be strong. But guess what? I'm going to be with you, and you're going to be able to drive them out. Now, they confront the chariots of iron, and I can just imagine the military generals talking to each other. (coughs) Chariots of iron. That's going to be hard. That might cost casualties. Not sure we can do it. Or we could let them stay on the plane. Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's, big plane. They can stay there. They don't need to go out. They compromise. They compromised because it was easier. See, you notice this pattern. Whenever the people have their back up against a wall and there's no other choice, then they're going to trust God. Then they're going to obey him. Then they're at the Red Sea. They can't go anywhere else. What else are they going to do? Whenever their foes seem more manageable and they might be able to do it on their own strength, now all of a sudden they think, ah, we've got options open. We can do it God's way. Or we could figure out another way and they decide for themselves. They they compromise. So Judah compromised. But they weren't the only ones to compromise. The next tribe to go up is Joseph. Verse 22. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them. Once again, they go up, the Lord's with them. Expect obedient, faithful victory. But that's not what you get. They go up against Bethel. Bethel is a place already claimed for God. Abraham worshipped there twice. Jacob received the vision of the angels ascending and descending the ladder at Bethel. Clearly, this is a strategic place to recapture for their, their worship. This is a place that God met with the people before. And they do recapture it, but not in the way that God wants them to. See, the city is not called Bethel at the time. It's called Luz. And they send scouts into the city first, Nothing wrong with that. But let's pick up at verse 24 and see what happened. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he shows them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go. Now, pay attention to this part. This is like the key climax of this short narrative and the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz and it is there to this day so what happened they were able to retake the city of Bethel but really the city of Luz just moved down the road they didn't do it in God's plan of actually taking care of the city obliterating the city This conquest involved compromise. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, that sounds really familiar to what happened in Joshua with Rahab. The spies went into the land of Jericho, and they found Rahab, and they spared her. Only it's not like that at all. Let me read you the account of Rahab. And when I read it to you, see if there's a word that occurs all the time in Rahab that you didn't read at all in the account of Luz. This is what happens with Rahab. Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you, and when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the king, two kings of the Ammonites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sineon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God is the God of heaven above and earth beneath. What word did you hear over and over again there? The Lord, yeah. It's on the lips of Rahab. She's, she, they're not compromising. They're evangelizing, and she's a believer in the Lord, so it's, it's right to spare her. She's going to worship Yahweh, the one true God. What word didn't you hear in the account of Joseph going into Bethel? The Lord. That was missing, conspicuously absent. Nobody was talking about the Lord. They were just thinking of the military advantage. And this is particularly bad in the light of the fact that the Lord was with them. Verse 22 The house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So their armies moving up, the Lord is there. But he's the one person that nobody's thinking of. Think about how, how foolish is that? This is the Lord who smote the Egyptians. This is the Lord who, who gave them the greatest victories. And he's there, and they're doing a military campaign, but they don't consult him. They don't think about him. They don't obey him. But if we know our hearts, this shouldn't surprise us. When we take the church that is spiritual and turn it into a business, forgetting the promise, lo, I am with you, we do the same thing. When we have God's promise of, going, of Him going with us, that we can go into our world, into our workplace and share the gospel, into our families and try to disciple and evangelize, into the world with the power of God, and He says, there, I'm with you, but yet we don't, and we back down, and we compromise. And we look at life as if the here and now is all there is. We do the same thing. Because the Lord has promised to be with us. And he is here with us. And yet how often do we not remember that? We look at spiritual challenges in our lives and we don't believe God could ever lead us into victory. So we compromise. Instead of trying to kill our sin, we manage it. And then the rest of the book, see we're having a spiral downhill here. Judah wasn't great. Joseph gets worse and the rest of the chapter is even worse. Let me just read you a few highlights. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites live in Gezer among them. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahola, so the Canaanites live among them. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of ako so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. See the re- what it's repeated over and over again? They didn't drive them out, so the people lived there. Now you have to understand, at one level, them, just, them not driving them out just made military sense. See, they go into this land, and some people in the land are stronger. They had chariots of iron other people were much weaker. And it doesn't make military sense. Isaac can advise me otherwise here. I'm not going to be the expert on military tactics, see somebody else. But anyway, it doesn't make sense to to go up against an enemy that's so much bigger than you and risk so many casualties. Nor does it make sense to devote all your time to defeating these other people who are weaker than you and really not posing much of a challenge, especially in light of the fact that the land they have is huge and there's more than enough room for all of them to be there at the same time. But that's not how God sees it. God sees it decidedly differently. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Let me read that to you. Now the angel of the Lord went up. See, that went up is important. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bokchem, and he said, I brought you from the land of Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted their voice and wept, and they called the name of the Lord Bochum, and they sacrificed to the Lord there. Now, what does God think of their strategic military alliance, their, their compromise? He doesn't think of it as, militarily advantageous, he thinks of it as a spiritual failure. You see, through worldly eyes, what they did may have made sense, where all that really mattered was the outcome of the battle. But See, through spiritual eyes, it did not make sense. And yeah, a NATO general might have looked at what they did and said, good, cautious, safe plan, that makes sense, guys. But God's not looking at it as a NATO general. He's looking at it as the one who is all-powerful and who has promised to help them and who is in a covenantal relationship with them. And God sees their refusal to fully drive out the people of the land, not as good military sense, but because of the special relationship that God has with them and because they, cannot, they must drive out the people of the land, God sees this as compromise. Instead of driving the people out of the land, they've entered into a relationship with the people. And that means they've broken their relationship with God. It's sort of like marriage. When people get married, what happens? They make a covenant relationship to one another that essentially says, because of their relationship to each other, they will not have the same kind of relationship with anybody else on the face of the earth. God has entered into a kind of marriage with his people. Because of his covenant with them, they are not to have a covenant with anybody else on the face of the earth. Therefore, the compromise with other people is spiritual adultery. And Judges uses geography to point this out. Did you notice where the angel of the Lord went up from? The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal. Now, in the book of Joshua, Gilgal is really important. Right after God stops the Jordan River and the people cross through on dry land, they settle in Gilgal. And there they set up 12 stones as a reminder of God's faithfulness to them. God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will drive out the people from the land. Only you must obey me. And then just outside the city of Gilgal, the angel of the Lord meets with Joshua, and Joshua says, are you for us or are you for our enemy? And the angel says, neither. I am the captain of the Lord of hosts. And then the angel gives Joshua the instructions, and Joshua carries those instructions out, and they do it, and they obey. Gilgal is the place that symbolizes God's covenant with his people. And it's the place where the people see God's faithfulness. Also, it's it's helpful to realize that commentators who've studied this much more than I have say that if you pay attention to the geographical clues in this book, it would be obvious that not only did the angel of the Lord go up from Gilgal, but so did uh, Judah and Joseph. Everybody went up from Gilgal kind of symbolic of the fact that everybody is proceeding forth on the basis of the covenant. They're going forth based on God's promises because he has a covenantal relationship with them. And yet, they fail to trust God. They break the covenant. And therefore, God goes up from the basis of the covenant and he says to them, what is this that you've done? Or another way to say that might be, do you see what kind of difficult position you've put me in? You see that? That that this passage sets up a tension. Because God says, on the one hand, I have sworn I will never break my covenant with you. But God also says, I have sworn never to bless a disobedient people. So, God, so now the very people who God has sworn to unconditionally bless are the very people who have been horribly disobedient. And what is God going to do? How is God going to fill his covenant to disobedient people? Or, or to put it in theological terms, How is God going to be both faithful and holy at the same time? See, our God is a God who makes promises, and those promises are real. When God says, I will do something, you can go to the bank on it. You can bet your life on it. Because God is faithful, and He will do whatever He says. That's part of His nature, that's part of His character. It can't change. But God is also holy, and He is pure, and He is righteous. And there's no sin in him at all. His eyes are too pure to look on evil. We heard last week from Jonathan Lehman a great sermon in which he talked about how the seraphim or the fiery ones cover their faces before God because they can't look into his pristine holiness. But God has put I mean, the people have put God in a situation where it appears as if he might have to compromise either his faithfulness or his holiness. How is God going to be both faithful to his covenant people and be holy at the same time? It looks like, ah, I don't know how he's going to do it, from the book of Judges' perspective, at least. And you realize, if God compromises his holiness or his faithfulness, he's not God. God it's, it's God's holiness that is the moral center of all that exists. And you take away God's holiness, God turns into a horrible monster that we would rather not exist, and that we must fight, because if God's not holy and he's as powerful as he is, that's really dangerous. Or, if God's not faithful, well then actually, by implication, he's not holy, and we have no guarantee to believe anything that he says about what he's going to do. So how is God going to show himself both faithful and holy at the same time? Well, it's not, the answer is not found in the book of Judges. It's found in the New Testament, where God sends his perfect human manifestation of His holiness, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ does what every human was supposed to do. He obeys perfectly. Christ does everything God calls Him to do. And then Christ dies on the cross, taking the penalty for everything that we've done wrong. And see, here, God satisfies His holiness by accepting Christ's perfect righteousness as our righteousness that we need to stand before Him. So how does God accept His covenant people? Not on the basis of their holiness, because they don't have it. He accepts them on the basis of Christ's holiness. Therefore, the requirement of holiness is met. God gets real holiness to accept His people. It doesn't come from His people; it comes from Christ. And then God can be faithful to His people by giving them the righteousness of Christ, imputing it to them to their account, as Paul says, so that they stand before Him clothed with that righteousness. And then Paul talks about that in Romans 3, and he says that that God is then both just and the one who justifies the ungodly. How can God justify ungodly people, which seems like it's an abomination to him, and still be the just God? Well, the answer is by accepting Christ's righteousness and punishing Christ in their stead. Now, friends, seeing how that's resolved, seeing how God is both faithful and holiness, should lead us to praise God. And that's the spirit that Paul writes in Romans 3. He's, he's leading up to the, the great declaration of worship in Romans 11, where he extols the greatness of God. Who can fathom all that God does? Praise God that God is both holy and faithful at the same time. And that means that, that we can stand before him and that we can be in a relationship with him and then we worship him. Friends, does that lead you to worship? Does that lead you to praise him? Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to realize that this good news of God being holy and faithful is only good news for you if you're in Christ. Because that's the only way that God accepts sinners. That's the only way that sinners are justified, by being in Christ. That is, taking the righteousness of Christ, and we have that through believing in Him. Or as the Bible says, believing into Him, so that we get Him. Outside of Christ, all we have to expect is God's judgment. Ask Adonai Bezak. That's what he realized. That God was repaying him before all the wrongs that he's done. I mean, we see in this book, if we don't see anything else in Joshua, we see that God, and judges too, that God is the judge. He will judge his people. He has the right to do that. He is the king eternal. He's saying, lead on, O king eternal. He is the judge. And he will judge all sin. All those who worship other gods in the lands were destroyed. And so also, at the end of the day, all those who are found in their sin will be destroyed. And it will be eternal. It will not be a quick death by the sword. It will be everlasting. You see, God is infinitely holy. Infinitely holy. And therefore, our sin against God creates an infinite violation of justice. That is only satisfied by an infinite punishment. The Bible clearly teaches that. That God is judge and he will judge his people. But there is one provision. And that is Christ. God sent his son to take his infinite son. With infinite holiness to take the punishment that we deserve. And those who are found in Christ receive the full satisfaction of their sins. So friends if you don't believe in him. Believe in him today. Find yourself in Christ that you may be saved. And then, after you believe in him, don't settle for anything less than total obedience. And one of the things that I think helps us to give God our total obedience is seeing that God is both faithful and holy at the same time. See, if we know that God is faithful, then we know that even if we sin, he will still be faithful to us, that he will not abandon us. We know that if we stumble and fall, God won't say, forget what forget you, No, those who he's promised to be with, he will still be with them. And that allows us to go forth with confidence. Not in ourselves, but in Christ. Because he is faithful. It should be tremendously encouraging. But it shouldn't lead us to complacency. Because it also should burn in our minds that God is holy. When God remains true to his holiness and gives us his holiness by slaughtering his son... How can that do anything in us but cause us to hate our sin? How can we cultivate a love for something that has created pain for Christ? Imagine the agony. For some of you, it's not imagining, it's real. The agony of watching a loved one die of cancer. Imagine after that loved one has died, would you ever start growing cancer cells in your kitchen for fun? Would you... Cultivate a love for them like some people cultivate a love for houseplants. Oh, here, this one is metastasizing. No, it's you wouldn't do that. You would hate it in light of what it's done. I'm, I'm going on a bike ride in a couple of weeks with some of our neighbors who are, who are doing the bike ride to raise money for cancer research because they lost their dear friends to cancer. And therefore, they hate cancer. And they want to... Not rest until it's totally destroyed. They don't just want to see it contained or managed. They want to see it eradicated. Friends, that's the same attitude we should have to our sin. We should want it eradicated. We should hate it. We should see how sin brought about the death of Christ. We should see how sin robs God of his glory. We should see how sin is utter destruction of all that is good. And we should hate it with a perfect hatred. We should make no compromises with it. We should not try to manage it. We should seek to kill it. One pastor put it this way. Yes, I sin, but let this be said in my defense. I hate it. Friends, Can you say that? Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we ask that you would create in us a hatred for our sin in light of a love for your holiness. Thank you that you are both holy and faithful at the same time. And thank you that means that, that, that means we have resources in you, that we can walk in holiness. Give us confidence that that one who comes to you will not be cast out, but you will accept all who come in the name of Christ. And then give us power and motivation and desire to fight sin, to fight that enemy which you have already destroyed. Help us to do that, we pray in Christ's name.